Well, we come to the final Sunday of our Summer Lights series, and Dr. Salim Manire is our distinguished guest. Salim is the founder and the executive director of Masalaha Reconciliation Ministries in Jerusalem. That ministry was founded in 1990, and since that time, the ministry has become a world-recognized model for the promotion of reconciliation throughout the world. His ministry brings together long-standing adversaries in powerful bridge-building experiences that unite hurting and fearful people. Dr. Manire attended Tel Aviv University and Fuller Theological Seminary prior to being awarded his Ph.D. from the Oxford Center for Mission Study and the University of Cardiff in Wales. He serves on the faculty of Bethlehem Bible College and is a featured speaker at a number of universities and seminaries here in the States. Salim is married to Kay. They have four wonderful sons. He's been a Christ Church-supported mission partner since 1998, and I know that you'll want to join me in welcoming back our very good friend, Dr. Salim Manire. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for all of you that are praying and supporting us through the years of ministry. This morning, I will be sharing with you about a ministry of reconciliation called Musalaha. Musalaha meaning Arabic reconciliation. Have the same root in Hebrew, forgiveness, licha. A ministry that we founded in 1990 in order first to promote reconciliation between Israeli Jewish believers in Jesus, or Messianic Jews, <clears throat> and Palestinian Christians around the life and teaching of Jesus, but also to do bridge building between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. When I come to America and I speak in many, many churches, I found out that most American Christians, their understanding of the history of the Holy Land it started with the book of Acts, then there is a big gap, and they jumped into 1948 with the current conflict of the Middle East. I have a question to ask. How many, how many of you met Palestinian? If you raise your hand. How many of you knew that there are Palestinian Christians? Very few. How many, how many of you knew or know that there are 13 million Arab Christians throughout all the Middle East? Very few. It's amazing. We're living in a global village, and the lack of understanding of what God is doing around the world is astonishing. So I am Palestinian Arab Christians. What that's mean? That's mean that in the Holy Land, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and ascension to heaven and the pouring of the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, we read about many multitudes of people coming and experiencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. One group were also the Arabs. Maybe the Arabs converted to Judaism of that time, or Jews that spoke Arabic. So in the Holy Land, through the years, were multi-ethnic groups, Jews, Canaanites, Samaritan. Uh, they were Greek, uh, Phoenician. And by the way, the Palestinians today are not the Philistines of the time of King David. As a matter of fact, the Philistines being taken to exile to Babylon with the kingdom of Israel with the ten tribes. And the Phoenician came downward from what today Lebanon took over. So this area of the Holy Land went through major changes through history. 
One of the most important changes that happened that from the time of the early church until the 7th century, all that area of the Middle East embraced Christianity. The Christianity of the East, Greek Orthodox Christianity, or some of us call it Byzantian Christianity. This is a Christianity that formulated our tenet of faith. The, the different church council that formulate the basic of our belief. As a matter of fact, when I speak and talk to my, grand, to my father-in-law, he's a very proud Englishman, that going very proud Christian, very proud with the King James Bible. I remind him from time to time that when the English people still in the forest, the Arab Christians were formulating theology in Arabic and Greek. They were writing philosophy. So people ask me, when you have converted? I said, I have been converted 2,000 years ago. So Arab Christianity exists for more than American Christianity or English Christianity, and it is something astonishing for many people to hear. In the 7th century, the area, this area in the Middle East got conquered by the Muslims and Arab tribes that were coming out from the area of Saudi Arabia. And the process of Arabization and Islamization went through the whole Middle East. What that mean? It's mean Arabization that the people of the Middle East, that they spoke Aramaic or Greek, moved to speak, and the main language was Arabic. Arabic is very close to Aramaic, so it was very easy in that process. But still the people were Christians. But there were several major wars. One of them is the Crusades that we hear about in the 10th, 11th century. As a result of the Crusades and the failure of the Crusades and what they did in the Middle East, there was the beginning of the decline of Christianity in the Middle East. But after the Crusade, during the 13th century, another people group came into the Middle East called the Mongols. The Mongols, with some of you read books or saw movie about Genghis Khan that came from Central Asia and conquered part of Europe, they conquered the Middle East and did devastation to the whole water system and irrigation system that was in the Middle East. That was the beginning of the decline of the Middle East and also the decline of Christianity in the Middle East. And the next point in history is very important because the Mongols later embraced Islam and they formulated a big empire that what we called at that time the Ottomanic Empire or the Turkish Empire. And until First World War, all that area was controlled by the Ottomanic Empire. With the decline and First World War, new things were happening in the Middle East that bring us to the current conflict between the Israeli and Palestinian and the question what we as a Christian are doing about that. In 1948, during the conflict that was in Palestine between the Jews and the Palestinians, this my home city being conquered by the Israeli army. It was a massacre, the city of Lida. You can read about it in books on his, about his, the history of the conflict. And it was a massacre, and all the people of the city were ordered out of their homes. And who refused got killed. So my father and his brothers and sisters began their journey like many, many other thousands of Palestinians to become refugees. But when they passed by the church of St. George in the city of Lida, a church that my grand-grandfather built, the church that built upon the tomb of St. George, 
the patron of England, 200 Christians decided to find refuge in the church. The ones that stayed in the church were able to remain in their hometown, but they were not allowed to go back to their homes. So they became refugees in their own hometown. So I born post that era, traumatic era, that a Palestinian call it a Nakba, was not only the loss of life, loss of homes and lands, loss of lands that if you travel into Israel today, near the airport, quite a bit of that land used to be owned by my family. But more than anything else, Palestinian Christianity, that the people that were living at the Levant at that time were speaking English, French, Arabic, they developed a very unique Christianity, and that Christianity got shattered and broken. From being 24% of the population of Palestine, the Christians, 1948, now we are less than 2%. The wars affected us very much. So growing up with that bitterness, pain, hatred of that area, going to Arab school and Christian school, I grew up in that city where we had to learn Hebrew and we had to learn to interact with Jewish people that were coming from different parts of the world. But when my time came to study at high school, there were no Arab Christian high school in my hometown. So my parents made a decision to send me to Jewish high school. And here I am, Palestinian Arab Christian boy in a Jewish high school. And immediately, I encounter in the classroom what we call the Jewish narrative. The Jewish historical narrative trying to emphasize why the Jews need a state. And the reason for that, the mistreatment of the Jews in Eastern Europe, especially in Russia, the anti-Semitism, the pogrom, the nationalism, and later came the Holocaust. And for that reason, it came a movement called the Zionist movement. The Zionist movement is a national movement of the Jewish people in order to create a state for themselves. First, they thought to do it in Argentina or Uganda, but colliding and an agreement with the interests of the British Empire, and also for religious reasons, I don't have the time to talk about that, they have decided to create a Jewish state in Palestine. And Jews began to come into Palestine. The Jewish who were coming into Palestine, they were refugees, most of them, fearful of the winds of war of Europe. And they collided with the Palestinian people that were living in the land, the indigenous people, that they also wanted to create their state. And the people that caused all this pain to the Jewish people, the teachers said, were Christians. So students in my classroom, they used to turn to me from time to time, trying trying to ask me, what, what, who you are? Are you Christian or Muslims? I said, I'm a Christian. They said, that is worst. Imagine that long time ago. Now the situation will be different. But here I am, Middle Eastern Christian. I've been brought up and grew in a church that never taught me to hate anyone not, or to hate the Jewish people. Suddenly, my religious identity came into a question. So I went I began at that time asking a lot of questions about my faith, about my religion. I was an altar boy at the Greek Orthodox Church. But 
not only that I was a Christian, I'm also Palestinian. And the teacher said, you know, this land was desert, and we, the Jews, we came and made it garden. And the Arab, came, because of economic growth, the Arab came from the neighborhood country. And during the war, they, will be told, they were told to leave their homes because later they'll come and conquer everything. And I said, just a minute. My family here, thousands of years. My grand-grandfather used to export the Jaffa orange, really the one among you that remember how orange used to smell, not like today from Brazil, that smell like a plastic. They used to export. The Valley of Lida is green. It wasn't desert. So what you're telling the students is not true. So not only my religious identity came into challenge and question, also my ethnicity. In that context, you can imagine the challenge as a teenager, the wars that were in the Middle East at that time, the feeling of the hatred and bitterness and anger and understanding that there, are, there is no hope at that time for me in that part of the world. One day, toward the end of my high school, I was sitting in the back of the class. We were studying about great men of history, and you know there are great women in history, but sadly to say, our schools were a little bit chauvinistic, and some of them until today. So I was sitting in the back listening to my history teacher that I liked at that time very much, and next to me was sitting a Jewish young beautiful girl, and I was trying to sneak with her outside the classroom for a date. So we, want, we, we, we were talking about good excuse to get out of the class. But at the same time, I was listening to the teacher. And out of provocation, in the mid-17s Israel, I asked the question in the classroom, why we're not studying about Jesus? You know, Jesus, Christianity, uh, he, Jesus uh, founded Christianity. That's what I used to think about that time. And the Christianity is the biggest religious movement in the world, so why we're not studying about him. You know, imagine mentioning the name of Jesus in Jewish high school in the 70s. It was a combination of earthquake and tsunami at the same time. <laughs> the shouting and screaming and the argument that went through the classroom was horrible and terrible. And I had an argument with, with my teacher. My argument with my teacher was based on the information I had as a boy from the church. He was university-trained teacher. Of course, I lost the argument. But as my mother and my wife agree with her, she tells everyone, Salim doesn't like to lose an argument from age four. When your mother and your wife agrees, you are in trouble. <laughs> so that feeling of something right that I had, but I didn't have the information, drove me to find a Bible study uh, at my uncle's home. And to my amazement, in this Bible study at my uncle's home, I found a group of Jewish kids from my high school and Arab-Palestinian kids sitting together and learning about Jesus. A Jesus that came to confront the Roman Empire. Jesus that came to present a new way to address life. Jesus that addressed corruption of political religious, and economic leaders of his time. Jesus was leading and talking and addressing the marginalized people of the society of his time. The tax collector, the collaborator, the prostitute. That Jesus spoke to me. In that context, 
I committed myself to the Lord, and I went, and make the story short again, I went and studied in the state at Fuller Theological Seminary, and after graduation from Fuller, I came back in order to teach Israeli and Palestinian. And as I was teaching Israeli and Palestinian, the awareness and the pain of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was very, very much in the life of the people. And I have asked the question, how Jesus and his cross, that he reconciled us to God and to each other, can be living in the heart of people. Does the power of resurrection is more powerful than ethnic hatred and loyalty? Can Jesus can bring change into the life of people? And every time when I attempted to bring Palestinian, Arab Christians, and also Muslims, and Jews, and Messianic, Messianic Jews together, we ended up in argument and hatred toward each other. You know, how you take the verse from first letter of John, chapter 4, when John challenging us and say, how can you say that you love God that you don't see and hate a brother or sister that you see? A challenge that we have every day, how we bring the teaching and the example of the life of Jesus to Monday to Friday, how we live it in our business, how we live it in our community, how we live in the world outside the church, how we bring the reality of the teaching of Jesus to our life. And this is a question that I had. We talk a lot about reconciliation. We talk a lot about unity, but rarely we experience that. So looking into it, I discovered few things that really hinder us from developing reconciliation. Because reconciliation talk about two important issues. One, developing relationship and trust. And the other one, addressing the injustice that we have in our community. But how can we develop relationship and trust in intractable conflict where people hate each other? Where in Israel, Palestine today, it is like one house with two families living with each other. They have to share the living room and kitchen together, but they don't want to share the bedroom because they want to keep their distinct identity as a group. But not only to keep their distinct identity, really, they don't like each other. And to my amazement and shock, what we call today dehumanization begin in the Israeli and Palestinian culture from early age. My wife was at the park, and next to her was a Jewish mother. And she overheard the conversation between them when the mother challenged her daughter to come back home, and the daughter wanted to stay in the park. After an argument, the mother turned to her daughter and told her, I'm going back home, you stay in the park, and the Arab will come and kidnap you. Come, coming back home, that conversation confirmed research that I did at the Hebrew University with a Jewish professor that we found out by age five, Israeli and Palestinian children have already the picture of the other, the enemy, is totally being dehumanized. They don't see them as human beings. I went uh, the next day to Bethlehem to teach at the Bible College, not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, by the way, Bethlehem, real Bethlehem. <laughs> I went to Bethlehem to teach, and I overheard Palestinian mother have an argument with her son. He didn't want to listen, so in the end, she told him, if you don't listen to me, I'll get you the Israeli soldier. 
Dehumanization is the root of all evilness and intergroup community strife. In Rwanda, when I was teaching Rwandan about reconciliation, in half a year of process of dehumanization, they massacred more than one million people. When do you find out that you have dehumanized people? When you generalize about them. When you say the Arabs, the Jews, the Muslims, the Christian, when you put everybody in one lump of people. You know, when I travel into the state, I have to go through immigration. When I put my hand on the machine, only my photo come, because each one of us is a distinct human being. Each one of us is unique. And if we don't look on the uniqueness of the creation of God in each one of us, in each people group, we are going to find ourselves behaving, our having the attitude of hatred that lead to violence toward other people. But not only dehumanization affects us very much, is that we think that we are better than other people. We choose the moral value in order to prove to other people that we are better than them. In the classroom that I have at the college, two Palestinian, children, uh, two Palestinian students were cheating. And after that, confronting them, the American students studying with them said, oh, they're not Christian, they are cheating in the classroom. And the Palestinian students said, oh, we're just helping each other. Afterward, outside the class, two American students were kissing each other. So my Palestinian Christians said, they are not Christians because they are not married and they are not allowed to kiss each other. We choose a moral value where our culture is better than the others in order to judge other people. But there's something more than anything else that exists in our area, in our culture. The history of the Jewish people and the history of the Palestinian people the painful part of that history have caused our both people to acquire what we call victimization mentality in our identity. Every Jewish young men and women, including my children that go to Israeli schools, to Jewish schools, they study two months about the Holocaust. Even part of their graduation they go to a, to a program called March of the Living. They go and visit Auschwitz. Imagine what that does to 17 years old. The Holocaust became a formative aspect in Jewish identity. Never forgive and never forget. Palestinians from other side said, are saying, Europeans killed the Jews. They don't want Jews in Europe. We are paying the price for what the Europeans did to the Jewish people. It's part of colonial endeavor to have a Jewish Western, Western state in the Middle East to endeavor Western interests in the Middle East. And as a result, in 1948, it's called the Nakba. What that mean? It's really important because every conflict relates to your identity, how you perceive yourself and how you see yourself. It touches you, affects you, how people treat you, how people behave toward you. And if you have victimization mentality, develop a fatalistic way of life. We'll never have peace with the Jews. We'll never have peace with the Arabs. You don't take responsibility for your action, and you blame the other for all the reasons why the conflict is continuous. 
But not only that. We develop indifference to the suffering of other people if you have victim mentality, victimization in your ethnic and identity. What does that mean? In Gaza Strip, there are 10 miles approximately. On 15 miles, there are a million and a half people living there, and they're not allowed to leave that area. There are children that all their life never left that area. They're living on $1 a day. When I try to explain to Jewish people what that means, they say, oh, we tried, to, we tried to have peace, you know, and they retaliated, they deserve it. Maybe another 50 years I'll come and talk to them. When I tried to explain to Palestinians the fear of Jews of terrorism, they say, oh, that's not terrorism, that's guerrilla warfare. I said, but I live in Jerusalem, and I see the effect and the fear on the life of people when they go to with the buses or the go to the malls. So we are, have developed total indifference to the feeling, to the hurt, to the pain of the other people. In that context, it's impossible to have reconciliation. In order to deal with that, 20 years ago, out of desperation, I took 15 Israeli and 15 Palestinian into the desert. The desert that you saw, some of the Israeli after the Israeli army, and some of the Palestinians, they were involved in the demonstration in the street of Bethlehem against the army. So what was happening there, because anytime we met in a church or in community or any other places, we were not able to achieve reconciliation. So we, when we went to the desert, we were staying in big Bedouin tent. We attempted all kind of way to break the hostility between them. Nighttime come, the Israeli went to sleep in one side of the tent, the Palestinian other side. My Jewish colleague and myself, we slept in the middle. And he jokingly said, until today, he's saying, with one eye open, was not working out. In the morning, we got up. I had 15 camels. As you saw on the photo, on each camel, I put an Arab-Palestinian and Israeli Jew. Imagine the fight I had to endure in order to persuade, to persuade them to sit on the camel together with water and food. And we had journeyed into the desert like our father Abraham, and after three days they become friends. And why is that? Because the desert in the Bible is the place of trial of faith. When you are in the desert, you, have, you are in the quietness of the desert, the harshness of the desert. There is nothing in the desert to hide you think about life. You realize how small you are, how great he is, but more than anything else, also you realize that you need your neighbor on the camel, but your neighbor is your enemy. In order to survive, you, are rely, you have to rely on your enemy. This is really key things. It's really key things. Because I tell them, if you hate and don't forgive, it's like drinking glass of poison, glass of water with poison, anticipating your enemy to die. If you don't forgive, you destroy yourself. Because your enemy doesn't feel, doesn't think, or doesn't go through all those emotions and thoughts that go through you, that eat you from inside. Unforgiveness is root of all evilness, and we are commanded to forgive but it's more than forgiving. 
It's more than forgiving. Because how you relate to your enemy, how you interact with your enemy, tells a lot about you. In your enemy, you will discover, you will discover yourself. I repeat it. The teaching of Jesus is very important. In your enemy, you'll discover yourself. Because if you don't forgive, you're choosing death and not life. If you don't choose the path of reconciliation, addressing the issue, addressing the injustice, you and your children and grandchildren will continue to be in war, and you will not find the path of peace and prosperity for everybody. That's what the book of Deuteronomy Teach us, choose life, don't choose death. And in the desert, when you rely on your enemy, where you're at home, you're competing on resources, suddenly your resources and his resources is essential aspect for your survival in the desert. In that process of change, where before you're closing yourself, slowly, slowly you're opening yourself to the other person and you embrace him. When you embrace him, you understand the greatest things that God did to us. He came to a world, rebellious world, walked and honored us by being human being, slave, embraced us, and took our sin on the cross. And that's what the, the, the desert do to us. I would like to conclude with one thing that's very important. You know, in the Gospel of John chapter, John, Gospel of John chapter 13, it's written that they will know us by our love, that we are his disciples. And that's what's happened to us. Because one time, as we're climbing Mount Sinai, early in the morning to see the sunrise, the mountain that some people think it is a mountain where the prophet Moses received the Ten Commandments, we had a group of Egyptian Muslims helping us to carry our stuff and drive the, the jeeps in, in the desert. After we came down from the mountain, they came to us and said, we want to talk to you. Because when we heard that our, there, are, there is a group of Israeli and Palestinian coming to the desert, we thought, that is trouble. The desert is hard enough. But after two days with you, we don't know who is the Jew, who is the Palestinian. You're eating together, you're drinking together, you're worshiping together, and even you are praying together. What's that all about? We shared with them that we believe in Jesus, and they asked for the Bible. You see, this is a fulfillment of our Lord Jesus' prayer. Jesus prayed that we'll be one like him and the Father, so the world will know that he came from the Father. Muslims think that Jesus is just a prophet, but prophet does not change the hearts of people. Prophet doesn't transform heart of stone to heart of flesh. Some Jews think that Jesus is a teacher. Some think he's a false messiah. Teacher impart knowledge, does not transform people. And that's what's happened to us when we are coming together. Under the cross of Jesus, there is transformation and this is the message that we have to the world. First, we need to develop relationship of trust in order to address the injustice together that we encounter in life. Thank you.